We're looking at Matthew chapter 7, from verse 13 down to verse 27, 28, 29. We'll find out in a second. 29, perfect. Um, Let's read this together. Matthew 7, from verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, but those who find it are few. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from the thorn thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and, a great, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, great to have you with us tuning in for this morning as we dive into God's Word. And as we get into the last section on the Sermon on the Mount, as we move through the entire Gospel of Matthew, the story of Jesus' life, his birth, his teaching, his ministry, and finally his death and resurrection. But I'm so glad you could be with us this morning as we head into the third week of a lockdown that now looks like it's probably going for a stretch. And look, I don't know how you felt when you sort of got the news on Friday that that might be the case. I think for most of us it felt like a scooter to the shins. And, um, and I think, it's, look, it's fair enough that it felt a bit like a kick in the guts. And if you are feeling just, like I was saying, just vaguely anxious about it or a little bit uneasy about this next while, just know that you're not alone, that we are a community of people who follow Jesus. And so whether you are checking us out for the first time or you're a member of this church, we are in this together. And I do realize like, we need to keep it in perspective. There are other countries where, I mean, in, in many ways we've had it easy in Australia. But at the same time, the challenge of heading into a lockdown is real. If you're, a, if you're a parent and you're now feeling like, I have zero time alone, that's a challenge. If you're someone who's living by yourself and you're feeling like, all I've got is time alone at the moment, that also is a challenge. And so I want to say that, that we are here for you and for one another, but also Jesus is still on the throne and he's still working his purposes out. And he is still bringing about his kingdom purposes in the world. In Isaiah 41.10, just to draw our mind to the goodness of God at this time, in Isaiah 41.10, he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
That God is for us, He is with us, and He will strengthen us, even over this uneasy season as we move through lockdown. And so to that end, the podcast tomorrow is really on making a plan to thrive over this time. Now, I realize saying that might seem a little bit optimistic or whatever it is, but the truth is we have, we have been through this before. We, we can anticipate what some of the challenges will be. And it's a time, I think, where we don't want to be beating our head against the same wall as last time. There are things that we learned about what it means to be a follower of Jesus during lockdown, and so we want to make the most of that. How to build a week around going deep into God's Word, but also how to rest well, because that's going to be a massive challenge, and how to build in things that are fun and then are going to open our mind to the beauty and transcendence of God over this time. And so we're going to be getting on to that tomorrow, a bunch, along with a bunch of just really practical suggestions as to how to kick on during this time, because we would love to be a people who over this time are being strengthened in our faith in Christ, comforted by His promises, depending on Him and following Him. And we have a chance to do that as a community. So I look forward to that tomorrow. But right now, as we dig into God's Word, we're actually going to see something here, a teaching from Jesus that at this time in particular is strangely comforting. Because Jesus is going to say that to follow Him ultimately is difficult, is challenging, is hard, but it's worth it. And isn't it the case that most of the things in life that are actually genuinely meaningful or worth it are kind of counterintuitive? That they are difficult. That often the things that require the most challenge or overcoming ultimately are the most rewarding. God has built clues into his creation that following Jesus would be somewhat like this. And it's the same in every sphere, whether it's work or arts or sports or whatever it is. That oftentimes the easy way, the one that rewards most immediately, is not long-term the most life-giving. And that often the things that are most challenging or difficult or counterintuitive are the ones that are most life-bringing. Well, Jesus is going to say it's exactly the same with him. That to follow him is the narrow path, and it seems like the hardest way, and yet it's ultimately the one that leads to life, and yet the way that is wide and easy-looking is the one that leads to destruction. And so I'm going to pray that as we finish up on this section, this Sermon on the Mount, that we would hear Jesus' words with authority, because he is the one who speaks as God to us. So let's pray. Father, I feel the draw and the temptation even at the moment to diminish the impact of Jesus' words. But I hear his, his command that whoever relaxes the least of his teachings will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And so as we open your word, may we hear Jesus' teaching with full impact. Knowing that Jesus was and is the most loving person who has ever lived. And that when he speaks, we are to listen because he is the one, your son, whom you love. Father, we pray that we'd remember that Jesus is our king, the one that you've appointed over all things, the one who bled for our sin, the one who won our forgiveness. So may we listen and may we follow. And may we walk away convicted rather than condemned and in the full power and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. And all this, that we might live lives bearing fruit and giving you much glory, even over this time, and all for the sake of your name. Amen. Well, Jesus' teaching here, if you're listening to it, has a repetition to it. He has a way of speaking that was common, I guess, in ancient oration, that he would give illustrations in sets of threes. 
And I don't know if you noticed it here, but all of them, uh, there's three illustrations, one after the other, all in sets of two. There are two ways, then there are two trees, then there are two houses. And in each illustration, the result is the same. There's one way that leads to life, one that leads to destruction. There's one tree that bears fruit. There's one that's thrown in the fire. There's one house that stays fast. There's one that collapses. And so make no mistake about it. What Jesus is saying is on the line here is final salvation. What he's talking about is heaven and hell, living forever or suffering forever. That's what's at stake. And Jesus here is going to tell you how it is that you will know which path you're on, where it is that you are heading. Because he wants you to be sure of where you stand with God before that day when you will meet your maker face to face. He wants his people to be sure about what life after death means and to be sure that they actually have it. And it's something that really we should be asking. I mean, whether you're tuning in and you are a follower of Jesus or identify as that, or you're someone who's just actually thinking things through or even a bit skeptical, it should be the case that we ask the question, the hard question, around what happens after this life, when we die. Especially during a time like this, during a pandemic. It's reasonable. I mean, I think it's crazy often that it's a, a thought or a question that we, that we actually, many people have not formed any opinion on. It, it's, a, it's a kind of a gamble in that way. That our hope is that, I don't know, maybe everything kind of works out at the end or whatever it is, but most of the time people just put off even asking the question. And there's no other area in life in which we would gamble like that. You wouldn't ever just walk into a hospital and grab a handful of pills and down them because you are hungry and just think, oh, I don't know, I don't know what these do, but you know, we'll see. No, when it comes to life or death, you want to be sure about what is true and what is not. And so Jesus here is saying there's a way to know where you are heading for eternity. And that's why he starts this teaching on the wide and the narrow path. Look at what he says in Matthew 7, 13 to 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, because the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. He's saying, if your beliefs and way of living have never caused you trouble or difficulty, that you have largely gained, they've largely gained you success and favor. He says, be concerned because you may not be on the path to life. There's a clue that you might be on the wrong path. Jesus says the gate is wide and easy and smooth traveling for those who are heading to a path that is actually not leading to God and to life everlasting. It's easy and popular. And Jesus says following him will be like taking the narrow gate. The path is difficult and challenging. See, sometimes in Christian circles, you can preach a way that, you know, if you, just, if you were to follow Jesus, then everything's really going to work out for you. But here Jesus is saying, actually, to follow me is actually going to be challenging. It's going to lead to difficulty. Now, I need to be clear about what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that it is the difficulty that leads you to be saved. He is not saying that, look, if you're willing to suffer for Jesus, then he might actually see that and be like, all right, you're worthy of getting saved. Well, it's not like he's creating an obstacle course. Like um, he's created this challenging way of living that, you know, only the best, the elite, the best of the best religious people will survive it and make it through to the end. 
Now, that's not the illustration. If that were the illustration, there'd just be one path that's really difficult, and the ones who make it to the end are the ones who make it to life. Now, Jesus is saying, just so you know ahead of time, to follow him will be challenging, will be difficult, and yet ultimately it is the path that leads to life. In some ways, following Jesus is counterintuitive. It's a way that will actually bring difficulty into life, difficulties that you could avoid if you didn't follow Jesus. But he says this ahead of time because it's meant to be an encouragement. It's meant to be an encouragement that if you're finding the Christian life difficult, if you're finding following Jesus even hard at times, then it doesn't mean that you're on the wrong path. Think of it in this way. If you were to go on the Kokoda Trail, this is a path that's almost 100 kilometers long. And it's a path in Papua New Guinea. And the reason it became famous was that it was a path that many, uh, many Australian soldiers took during the Second World War uh, in order to make it to a new position. And this trail, people do it year after year, but it's incredibly difficult. It's, in di- it's difficult not just because the path is narrow, so it's a single file trail the entire way. It's not just difficult because it's long. It's not just difficult because the terrain is rough. It's also difficult because it gets incredibly hot during the day and humid. And then it's freezing at night. It's difficult as well because you're battling disease and even malaria is prevalent in the area. It's difficult in so many ways. But imagine if you were starting this trail and no one told you how hard it was going to be. If that were the case, imagine how you would feel partway through. Surely you'd start to second guess, is this the right trail? Have we taken a wrong turn somewhere? If it was really going to be this hard, surely someone would have told us. If it was this long, surely someone would have told us. But of course, going on this trail, people are told ahead of time exactly what it's going to be like so that when they meet challenges, they'll know, no, 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 this is still the trail. This is still the right path. Jesus tells his followers ahead of time so that they won't second guess things when things get difficult. So when things get hard, we can think, this is tough, but Jesus said this would happen. And he said he would be here with us to strengthen us through it. I'm not on the wrong path. And that's what's so bad about just poor or weak, unbiblical teaching that makes it sound like once you follow Jesus, everything becomes easy and all of the problems of life just evaporate. Because it puts people on the wrong footing when they first hit a challenge. And when, when things get hard... You might start to think, well, maybe, maybe God doesn't like me, or maybe I'm doing this wrong, or maybe I've fallen out of favor with God. No, Jesus says ahead of time that following him, it will be difficult, but it's the path that leads to life. It will be challenging. He's telling them ahead of time. And to be clear on this as well, the difficulty of following Jesus is not the difficulty of the constant guilt of not meeting God's standards or something like that that it's the weight of religious duty that makes it difficult. No, it's clear from the gospel that Jesus died for our sin and made you new. The challenge of it is that you'll care about things that you wouldn't have to care about if you weren't following Jesus. You'll care about sin in your own life or want to change, and that will be difficult. You'll be called to love people who don't love you back, and that will be difficult. You'll be called to do all these things that you see in the Sermon on the Mount, that in many ways are so life-giving, but also can be so difficult and so challenging. It's a sign that you're on the right path, that you're really following Jesus. And so Jesus tells us ahead of time, follow the narrow path. It's the one that leads to life. 
And he says this because he wants us to know that there will be teachers that come along that will promise a different way. Look at what he says next. In Matthew seven fifteen to 20, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says ahead of time, beware that false prophets will come. There will be teachers who pretend to be the people of God, who call Jesus Lord, but they are false. There are teachers who will teach the way that is wide and narrow and say that's the one that actually, uh, sorry, that's wide and easy and say that is the way that leads to life. They'll take any difficult teaching of Jesus about hell or sex or marriage or money or any of these things and say, look, you can do whatever you want. You can do exactly what the main culture is doing and it's fine. You can still be a follower of Jesus. And you'll be able to find someone who's got a PhD and you can say, look, if you just look in the Greek or the Hebrew, you can see that actually what Jesus said is the complete opposite of the real meaning. But Jesus says, beware, these are false prophets. The New Testament echoes this teaching. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes to an elder of the church, Timothy, and says to him, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Jesus warns there will be false prophets. They're wolves in sheep's clothing who will come along and say anything that you want to hear. But he says they are not like him. They don't love the sheep. They are ravenous wolves. They're doing this for personal gain, for profit or for notoriety. But Jesus loves us enough to speak the truth. He says, beware of false prophets. Now, that's one type, but the other type that seem to be mentioned here are ones that do teach what appears to be sound teaching. They teach what Jesus taught. The problem is that they don't live lives that are inwardly transformed or have a real relationship with God. Look what he says there. He says there are trees that will bear bad fruit. There are those who don't actually know him, ones whose outward ministry will make it look very much like they are teachers of Jesus, that they are following the way of Jesus, and yet the fruit of their lives will show that they will not. Even here he says, look, there'll be ones who cast out demons or who prophesy in my name, who on that last day when they stand before God, Jesus will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. And not only that, this isn't theoretical. There is one in their midst who is going to be like this. Judas, who would ultimately betray Jesus, was one of his closest followers. He was there for all of Jesus' ministry. And he would have been there when, when Jesus sent them out, when they prophesied in God's name, when they actually healed people and performed miracles in Jesus' name. In fact, he was so much a part of the crew that when Jesus tells them that someone's going to betray them, they can't imagine who it would be. It's not like Judas was the black sheep of the group and as soon as Jesus said, someone's going to betray me, they're like, oh, yeah, I wonder who. 
you know, this guy, and Judas kind of like looks sheepishly at his feet or something like that. No, he in every way looked like all the other disciples to the point where they, could not, they did not suspect that anyone would do it. And yet, truthfully, his life did not bear out that he actually knew Jesus. He was that close to Jesus, participating in his ministry, and yet did not really know Jesus. And Jesus says this will happen. This is probably the most discouraging kind, isn't it? I mean, when recently there's been a run, maybe recently, maybe we're talking a few years really, there has been a run of significant celebrity pastors who have fallen very publicly. And outwardly from a distance, they seem to be the real deal. They had ministries that were bearing gospel fruit. But their actual lives were not bearing the fruit of the gospel. One commentator on this, Mark Cosper, said that in the, in the modern age, it's possible for a pastor's platform to outgrow their character. That is, you can have someone whose reach is so wide and huge that it seems very much like they're doing the work of God when inwardly there has not been a genuine transformation. They do these big public things, but their real life is not actually bearing the fruit of the gospel. Jesus says this will happen. And he tells us that ahead of time, so that we won't think that this is all out of control or God's lost, God must have completely missed the ball, dropped the ball on this one. But to know ahead of time that we know that God is sovereign and he's in control even of this. Jesus warned us 2,000 years ago, there will be false prophets. There will be false teachers. But I think he says this for another reason as well. At the end of this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he's calling us to, to ask the question for ourselves, not just of other people, not just of celebrity pastors who've fallen, but to ask the question ourselves, have we really been saved? Does our life bear out that we have actually come to know and follow Jesus ourselves? See, in the gospel, we see that salvation leads to transformation. And you don't want to get the two confused. It's not transformation leads to salvation. It's not as if God says, if you change your life and transform things, then eventually I will accept you. If you've done enough, then I will let you into heaven and you can be one of my people. Now, that's not the case. Salvation, though, leads to transformation. If you have had a genuine encounter with Jesus, if you have come to know him as your Lord and Savior, it will lead to transformation. And that's why he gives the illustration here of trees. He says, a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. And on the flip side, a healthy tree will bear fruit. The illustration here is clear. Think of it this way. If you had a tree that was sick and diseased and therefore producing rotten fruit or no fruit at all, you cannot fix that tree by going up to it and just taping healthy fruit onto the branches. It doesn't work that way around. No matter how much fruit you tape on, it will eventually rot and fall off because if the tree is rotten to the core, it needs to be fixed at a deeper level. And it's the same with us. This is what the Bible teaches, a teaching called regeneration. That all of us were bad trees, ruined right to our core by sin, unable to save ourselves. And so God stepped in and by His Holy Spirit made us new and gave us new hearts with new desires that would believe in Jesus, that our sin would be washed away and that we'd be made new. But also that we would bear fruit. This is why in the Bible it talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That if 
the Spirit is at work in you to believe in Jesus, He also will be at work in you to produce fruit, that you would be like Jesus. See, this is the case that salvation leads to transformation. And for this reason, Jesus says, have a look at your life and see, have you, have you experienced genuine salvation to the point where it's actually transformed your life? Because if there is no genuine transformation, there may have been no genuine salvation. And Jesus says this lovingly and ahead of time so that we might actually come to know the truth before we would stand there on on that final day, that there might be a chance to repent and to turn to Jesus. And so really, I can't go past this passage without asking the question, are you saved? Are you sure about where you stand with Jesus? That if you were to die, that you'd be sure that you would stand before him and he would welcome you in as his child. Because if not, there is still time to know him. And we would love to help you with this. That form isn't just there, that Google form there isn't just there to let us know that, um, that you've been around. But if you want help with this, if you want us to be praying for you, if you want to actually come to understand whether or not you can be sure about where you stand with God, it would be our joy to serve you in this way. We cannot go past the end of the Sermon on the Mount without asking the obvious question that Jesus is pressing in. Are you sure about where you stand with God? And if you are sure, Jesus goes on to say, well then build your life on his words. Look what he says at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the very last section. In Matthew seven twenty four to 29 he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and the fall of that house was great. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, he's on the side of this mountain and has gathered this crowd around him. And after he finishes this teaching, people are just drop-jawed. He teaches like none of their teachers at the time. He was teaching as one who had authority. And they're just amazed by it. And what he says here at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount is, The wise man in this story is the one who builds his house on the rock, the one who builds his life on Jesus' words, and the one who builds it on anything else, ultimately it will be destroyed. It will be washed away. He's saying here, if you're a follower of Jesus, then build your life on Jesus' words. Notice here, though, as well, that he says there are really only two houses. You can either build it on the sand or on the rock. But I think the temptation is as Christians, is to kind of somehow hedge our bets or to sort of do both. To either build half your house on the sand or half on the rock or maybe more like build a house on the sand but then a granny flat on the rock just in case the the house on the sand gets washed away. To kind of be halfway in. To kind of want a life that's got all the benefits of following Jesus but then also, you know, just in case maybe he wasn't quite right about everything, that we also build it on some of the world's principles as well. But here Jesus says to follow him means being all in. To trust that what he says is good 
And that his teachings that we've been looking through in this whole Sermon on the Mount, what he says about life and meaning and money and marriage and forgiveness and prayer and all of these things and generosity and giving to the poor, all of these things are right and to build our lives upon. Jesus says, if you follow me, build your life on my words. And so I want to encourage us with a challenge. Over, these next, over the next 40 days, and this is not a prophecy about how long the lockdown's going to go or anything. 40 is just a biblical time period, so I'm just throwing it out there. I haven't had some kind of word from God that, uh, that this is going to go for however long. I have no idea. But 40 days is a good time, and we actually sent out a pack to everyone this week. Hopefully you got it. If you didn't, I don't know where it is at this point, but hopefully you got a pack this week. They had in there some passages to lead you through meeting with God for an hour so that you might build your life on God's Word. And I would encourage you over this week to actually set a time when you're going to do that. And if time is challenging because you've got little kids and things hanging around, then parents, book out a time when you're going to cover for each other so you can actually do this. But more than that, on the last page as well following that, there are 40 days of passages to actually work through. And I'm going, to, I'm going to set aside my Bible reading plan for the moment so that I can do this, and that maybe as a church we could do this in solidarity with one another. And it's going to move through the next section of the Gospel of Matthew that we might be sitting at Jesus' feet and hearing his words and building our life upon them over this next period. Because as uneasy and unsettling as this time period is, we can be sure of one thing, that it's, it is not a matter of foolishness to build our life on God's word. And to actually dive deep into God's Word over this time. To actually build our life upon it. And to trust Him that His ways are good. And so I reckon it would be a great challenge to put to yourself to carve out the time, to book in the time when you are going to be spending time in God's Word. And then together as a community be posting up what we are learning from God's Word that we might be encouraging one another over this time. That at the end of the Sermon on the Mount we might be actually living these things out and encouraging one another to build our life on God's Word, because He alone is good. Because Jesus is right. To follow Him is the narrow path. It is challenging, it is difficult, but it is worth it. It is the path that leads to life. That He is the one who has given us new life in Him, indestructible life in Jesus. And there is no one or no thing more worthy of our hearts than Jesus. So I'm going to pray that at this time God would be encouraging us and strengthening us as a community to build our life upon God's Word and upon Jesus' teaching, that we might be a people who are encouraging one another as we step out this next season to be following Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you are good and gracious, full of compassion and loving kindness. And we pray that over this next 40 days, that we'd be going deep into your word, that even as it starts to feel like everything is out of control around us, that we would trust that you've appointed Jesus to be king of all and that he is on the throne. And Father, during this time, may you strengthen us to encourage one another, to love one another, and all that Christ might be honored in our community. And Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.